Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. In this episode, we'll be looking at volume 13, number one of Parabola, from spring 1988, The Creative Response, and I'll begin with the focus for the issue from editor Lorraine Kisley. Everything we do is art, says Syed Hossein Nasser in our interview with him in these pages, good art or bad art. The major part of this issue is devoted to the achievement of sacred art and the search of contemporary artists and our contributors look at the context of the need to respond and to express in a form what is exchanged in a moment of that response. Dr. Nazar's comment affirms further that living is an art, that all are called to respond creatively to their lives. We are put under an obligation when we recognize, however dimly, that this is so. But we seldom understand how to meet this obligation, seldom see the demand in the moment it appears. It is possible to see that there is a difference between a reaction and a response. The reaction is easy and automatic, needing no effort. A response demands more. It demands a sacrifice of what is superficial and known for the sake of what is central and unknown. Janet Heinemann writes in this issue of her study under a no master in Japan. During her training, she arrives at a moment when this effort toward the central and unknown becomes clear. So my initiation is beginning, she writes. My promise is being strengthened. I have always avoided people who I thought could see through me. But now somehow I feel a great sense of freedom. Freedom from having to pretend to be strong, to know anything. I'm a student now, really, for the first time. I'm opening the door to humiliation, to awkwardness, ignorance, embarrassment. I'll go on with this study, ironically, because I'm not good at it. I've recognized something here that is deeply true. Becoming good at it is beside the point. I'm making a vow to grow. This vow to grow, grounded in reality and therefore humility, suggests the beginner's mind of the Zen sages and can be felt in the life and works of every man or woman whose presence fructifies and refreshes those around them. They remind us of our own need for discovery and in themselves are a promise of what may be found. Let's turn now to P.L. Travers' essay from this issue, The Interviewer. He had written from a distant country, asking if he might come and see me to talk about a series of books known to us both for an article in his newspaper. He would not take much of my time, he assured me, just an hour or so between plane journeys. Yes, I replied, knowing that the compliant word written down would not reveal the reluctance it might contain if spoken. I am shy of interviewers. They try to ferret out from one's heart things that even the stethoscope cannot be privy to. But to come all that way, I could not refuse. So he arrived, hurrying out of the sky, as it were, clearly eager for the fray, a blue silk handkerchief peeping out of his breast pocket, and his arms full of blue flowers. My favorite color. A good omen, I thought. Perhaps he was one of those journalists, rarely admittedly to be found, who have themselves something to contribute, perception, a streak of understanding. And he had, taking me warmly by both hands, these books, he declared, are not invented. This is why they are so interesting. 
Here was another good omen. How could they be, I asked, laughing. You invent motorcycles and atom bombs. So tell me, he said eagerly, settling himself into a chair and taking out his notebook. Where did you get the idea? The good omens took to their heels. How many times had I heard that question from people of all ages? Must I face it again? Where does anyone get an idea? But it must, it can't help it, come from somewhere. Why not from nowhere, I suggested. He waved this aside as frivolous. Well, did you ever know at some point in your life anybody like her? He named the book's chief character. What, someone who slides up banisters? No, never. Did you? Of course not. How could you ask that? I'm being serious. So am I, I assured him. Never more so. But you have to face the facts, you know. He was gentle, but determined. I don't see why, and there are no facts, or none that I am aware of. Oh, yes, there are, he insisted. And with something of a flourish, a gesture of triumph, he took from his notebook a newspaper cutting. I have here an interview with your sister in Australia. In it, she says that you told her about this character when she was a very small child. Well, if she was so very small, I myself could hardly have been much larger. But it's not true, I'm afraid. It must be. It's here in black and white. And black and white makes things true? Printer's ink on a scrap of paper? Then what did you tell her? If you could recall, it might give us a clue to what came later. I have no idea. Stories are like birds flying, here and gone in a moment. But this one must have stayed with her. How else could she remember? A matter of hindsight, I suppose. A linking or mislinking of one thing with another. Well, what thing? Think back, think back, think back, he urged me. The time, the place, the season, the weather. The weather. Suddenly he was no longer there. Oh, he was substantial in his chair, but in essence, he did not exist for me. I was hearing a cataract of rain stabbing a corrugated iron roof with sharp, resonant sword thrusts, and beneath it, the silence that had fallen as the three children ceased their playing. For she was standing by the door, her blue robe hanging from her shoulders, hair in a walnut braid down her back, her face white and distraught. I have had enough. I can stand no more. I am going down to the creek, she said. And she went out, closing the door behind her. If I had run after her, she would certainly have turned back. Mother in her very essence, she would never have allowed the barrage from heaven to be unleashed on her child. But at the age of ten, or almost, I was as green and tightly folded as a bud on a winter branch, not knowing what would later ripen, what woman's stuff, now an embryo, would comprehend the inner ferment that tonight had clearly reached its climax and urged her out into the storm, the husband dead at forty-three, she herself eleven years younger, left to be the sole resource, the one loved object of three ebullient children, the commodious house full of helping hands exchanged for what, by comparison, was about as capacious as a wren's nest. No stables, there were no more horses. Sugar and flour, once bought by the bushel, tea and mahogany boxes embossed with Chinese ideograms, were now bought in packets from the grocer. Bread from a baker's basket instead of out of the oven. A whole spacious bushland way of existence, suddenly expunged, and a new life laboriously to be made. Such a making did not trouble the children. For them it was all adventure as long as she was there, the playmate, the comforter, the constant pillar around whom their lives revolved. And indeed would have been adventure for her with all her lively zest for life, had she not had to do it alone. 
The sound that the door made in closing was as if a bell had tolled. It made the silence in the room seem louder than the rain. Large-eyed, the little ones looked at me. She and I called them the little ones, both of us aware, that an eldest child, no matter how young, can never experience the heart's ease that little ones enjoy. And I knew that what they needed from me was what we all needed from her, security, reassurance. I put a log on the failing fire, brought an eider down from a bedroom, and we lay together on the hearth rug, the warm downy quilt around us like a bird's wing shielding a hatch of nestlings. There was no need for me to think of a story, for suddenly he was there before us, the little horse, a colt, rather, finely made with narrow withers. I can see him now, mane and tail neatly trimmed, hurrying off on some pilgrimage. He's white, said one of them. Gray, said the other. No, I told them, spickled and speckled like a guinea fowl. And there we were, all gathered behind him, watching him moving over the ocean, sparks of light flashing from his hooves as he trod the smooth, dark waters, head thrown up, scenting the way. Perhaps he is going to his home. No, he's coming from it, I said, to a place that has no name. He can see it far away in the distance, a great big cloud of light. Will he get there safe and sound? Of course, he is a magic horse. The creek is not deep, there are crawfish in it. Surely no one could drown in it unless, like Ophelia in the picture, they lay down and let it cover them. If he is magic, can he do anything? Fizzle up the world in a frying pan? Yes. But the creek flows into a wide pool. Nobody knows how deep it is. We are not allowed there without a grown-up. A thrown stone has many rings around it. Can he fly into the air without wings? Yes. And dive to the bottom of the sea? Yes. What happens to children who have lost both parents? Do they go into children's homes and wear embroidered dressing gowns, embroidery that is really darning? Perhaps he will never get to the light. Oh, he will. Remember, he is magic. Will rich relations come and get us and turn us into poor relations? Is there corn in that land for him to eat? Yes, and a bundle of hay. Perhaps they will send us to different places, one here, another there. No one will be a little one. And a pail of water, all lit with light? Yes. Maybe she has gone from the creek to the pool. How long does it take a person to drown? Oh, I will be good, I promise. Could he carry us to the shiny land, all three on his back? Yes. I had to say yes, to comfort them, and also to comfort myself. But the horse was so small, not yet ready for burdens. I knew that he had to go alone. And somehow they must have known it too, for the three of us moved more closely together, drawing the eider down tightly, tightly around us, watching him toss up his speckled head as his hooves, dainty and precise, struck ever brighter sparks from the dark with never a splash from the water. I tried to think only of the horse and what would happen when he arrived. I was afraid of my other thoughts. The logs slipped sideways with a falling sound as they reddened in the grate. And at that moment she came in, rain streaming from her clothes and hair, looking young, forlorn, and lonely, but somehow with her mind made up. The little ones leapt and ran to her, crying, laughing, embracing her, drawing her into the warm room, squeezing the water out of her gown, kissing her in every possible place. And she gave herself to their ministrations, accepting the welcome gratefully, leaning on their joy. As they ran to find towels and dry clothes, she looked at me expectantly, waiting for me to go to her. But I turned away without a word 
and went to light the primus stove, a thing I was not supposed to do, it was only for grown-ups. When the kettle came to the boil, I filled a rubber hot water bottle and took it to her room. They were all in the big bed, all of them, the little ones huddled on either side, holding her tightly, safely, between them as they told her excitedly the story of the horse. She looked at me across their heads and lovingly held out her arms. But I stood silent in the doorway, and with all the strength I could find in myself, flung the hot water bottle at her and went to my own room. "'Oh, you cold-hearted child,' she cried. "'The others are so pleased to see me. What has happened to you?' I could not answer. It was true, however, that I was cold, not only in my heart but throughout the whole of my body. I lay in my bed still as a stone, feeling and knowing nothing.' All that was now. It was still now when I roused myself and found I had been thinking aloud, and also that I was weeping. I looked across at the interviewer, who, when I had last been aware of him, had been madly scribbling in his notebook. But his chair was empty, and in my lap lay the blue silk handkerchief and a note on a strip of paper. He must have quietly slipped away and left me to my tears, the tears that had stayed unshed within me, forgotten, concealed, biding their time till something they needed called them forth. And as the blue handkerchief absorbed them, they had been a delicate gesture. I knew they were not for myself only. The tight green bud had long unfolded, and now I could go with her through the storm, silently sharing what then had moved in her mind, the bed once proportionate to conjugal life with its whispered sleepy confabulations, yin breath and yang breath flowing together, naked foot over naked foot, the day dissolved, absolved by the night, was now as wide as a desert. What had once been borne by two had now to be carried by one. Fullness had become emptiness. I wept for her and at the same time could not allow myself to rejoice that she had come back through the door to be still the pillar, the sharer of all joys and sorrows, loving and loved for the rest of her life. I put the handkerchief away and took up the strip of paper. I have my answer, it said, the horse, the horse that can do everything. It is wonderful that from so much sorrow, such happiness could come. His answer, indeed. I flew to the door, hoping that I could catch him. But the little street, like his chair, was empty. Only at the end of it, a young man leaping into a taxi. I would like to have shouted wildly, stop. But what would the neighbors think? A citizen held to be relatively sane, shouting stop to nothing. Besides, I knew he would hurry home to tap out on his typewriter his gleanings from the morning. Tomorrow they would be in black and white on a host of breakfast tables, a fallacious account of a book's begetting transmogrified into fact. Nothing could stop that happening. But if I could have brought him back, I would have told him that there are no answers. There are only questions. Fallible creatures that we are, and being ourselves in question, we inevitably demand answers to ease the lack within us. All things must be capable of explanation. Every effect must have a cause, each problem a solution. It is thus that we arrive at conclusion, for conclusion brings about the ending that we mistake for an answer. That's finished, we say mendaciously. We can go on to something else. But nothing in life, nor perhaps in death, is ever really finished. A book, for instance, is no book at all, unless when we come to the last page it goes on and on within us. You, I would say to the interviewer, took the magic horse for an answer, the clue, the code to be cracked. 
It did not occur to you to inquire from whence the idea came to the child, or whether at some point in her life she had encountered such a creature, nor indeed what lay beneath the horse, the cause of which he was the effect. And the cause beneath that cause. Doubtless, had you pursued this course, you would have had to fall back on that too much bandied about unconscious, which people with little knowledge of psychology, and even those with much, make use of as a sort of psychic ragbag in which to throw any old concept. I have pondered long upon that phrase, is the unconscious unconscious of itself, and never felt quite at home with it. There seemed to be something lacking. Then I read in a book by Sri Mahada Ashish of Mirtola that in his view it should be properly translated as the unconscious. But would such a large, ungainly word take root in common parlance? I tried it on several scholarly minds, but while its accuracy was accepted, it was not received with enthusiasm. They would stick to their old-fashioned fallacies. Later, however, one of our leading analytical psychologists, being quoted in the magazine Resurgence, set all my unease at ease. It means, he said, and I verified this with one of his confreres, it means simply the unknown. The unknown, our beautiful Anglo-Saxon word, intimate, reverberant, profound, not so much to be understood, but stood under while it rains upon us. That is something I could well live with and indeed have revered, cherished, and tried to serve for many a year and day. Call it the unknown, and one can conceive of the creative response as being a next-door neighbor to it. Though with the general decline of language, this phrase too is often used without discrimination and applied to the scribblings of every passing rhymester. C.S. Lewis, in a letter to a friend, says, There is only one creator, and we merely mix the elements he gives us a statement less simple than it seems. For that mere mixing, while making it impossible for us to say, I myself am the maker, also shows us our essential place in the process. Elements among elements, we are there to shape, order, define, and in doing this, we reciprocally are defined and shaped and ordered. The potter molding the receptive clay is himself being molded. But let us admit it, with that word creative, when applied to any human endeavor, we stand under a mystery. And from time to time, that mystery, as if it were a sun, sends down upon one head or another a sudden shaft of light, by grace one feels, rather than deserving. For it always comes as something given, free, unsought, unexpected. It is useless, possibly even profane, to ask for explanations. Somehow, somewhere, the unknown is known, perhaps. Who can say to the wild bee? Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. You can find the creative response issue, as well as many of Parabola's other 45-year catalog of back issues, on our online store at store.parabola.org. And I hope you'll also join us online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>